Thank you, Sylvia, for reading that lengthy passage. I really appreciate that. Uh, confession is good for the soul. I just want to confess something I did wrong already this morning. My wife won't be surprised by this, but uh, I uh, think I broke the, um, the microphone, the whatever you call that, earpiece? Earpiece. So that's why I'm using this one here this morning. No surprise, right, Tricia? I think I just barely touched it and it broke on this. So. <clears throat> I'll be hearing about that later on today. So I thought I'd do it in the safe company of all of you. <laughs> so she's forgiving, right? That's good. <laughs> All right, let's open with a word of prayer, please. Gracious Father, thank you so much for your word. We cherish your word above all else. It's life-giving, life-sustaining, because your spirit works through your word. And we are delighted to be here today. The desire of our hearts should be, and if not, we ask for your grace to see your Son as supremely beautiful for your glory. We desire to see your glory this morning, Father, and so we as little children ask for your help in the way we receive your word. May your spirit empower the word deeply in our lives. And we ask this for your glory and for the sake of our life and for the sake of our neighbors. Thank you for hearing us, Father, in the name of your precious, beloved Son, Jesus. Amen. All right, this morning actually is a really neat uh, sermon, so I feel uh, quite pleased to present this to you. This is a wonderful story. I feel a little bit like my son uh, standing before you today, uh, who a couple days ago was with me at the thrift store, and we were uh, sifting through books, and um, I was showing him book after book. No, Dad, that's for babies. No, I'm not interested in this one. And then I pulled out a maze book and his eyes lit up and he was very excited and then I pulled out one of those find it books you know those find it books where you have these pages of just mass confusion and you have to find the most the things that they assign to you that are beautiful and uh, Caleb's eyes lit up and he was so excited to see the find it book in the maze book I feel like my son this morning with Acts chapter 12 Um, it is a maze and there are a lot of things to find um, I'm not going to pretend to offer to you everything there is in this text, but I do want you to see if you can, by the power of the Spirit, share some of the wonder and excitement of this fascinating passage. Scholars uh, for decades, for centuries, have scratched their heads over this one. Um, it's a difficult passage. It's a fun passage, but it's rather difficult as well. Um, it's difficult because as believers in Christ, uh, when we approach Scripture, Uh, We not only want to hear what it says, but we want to do what the Lord wants us to do as we hear it. And we want to identify the author's intention. So I have excitement over the text, but I also have fear and trepidation that we want to identify exactly what Luke intends to communicate to Theophilus, the recipient of this letter, and then the Spirit intends to communicate for us today in the 21st uh, century. Now, we could go to popular culture, um, popular Christian culture, to tell us what the intention of this text is. So you might be familiar with the 1984 song that I grew up with by Amy Grant. Have you heard that song before called Angels Watching Over Me? I would sing it to you, but I'm going to spare you because once you get the song and once you have the song in your head, you can't get it out. Uh, Amy Grant, according to Amy Grant, and this song actually landed her in the 1985 Grammy Awards for the best uh, gospel vocal performance. So very popular song 
called Angels Watching Over Me. And according to Amy Grant, that was the intention of the text, was that God's angels are watching over her, protecting her uh, from harm. And that's the first line where she communicates this story. And in the second stanza, she communicates how God has saved her in many ways uh, through, through his angel. So the song repeatedly says, Angels Watching Over Me. Uh, I do not know of any... New Testament scholar who would agree with Amy Grant that that's the intention of Acts chapter 12. Uh, But scholars have their own hands full of trying to identify what might be the intention of Acts chapter 12. And I'm going to read you just a few of those. And I'm going to start with Ben Witherington, his comment on Acts chapter 12, so you can just see what a wonderful text this is. Ben Witherington uh, has a massive commentary, a Greco-Roman commentary, rhetorical socio-rhetorical commentary on the book of Acts. Uh, it's, It's a very, very thick Uh, commentary, one of the best that I've come across. And he he says this, uh, Acts 12 is certainly one of the most colorful and entertaining narratives in all of Acts. These sorts of narratives have led to the suggestion that Acts should be viewed as some sort of historical novel or historical romance, the main aim of which is to delight or entertain one's audience. Uh, Actually, one New Testament scholar who strictly deals in Luke and Acts. His name is Richard Purvo. This is one of those texts where he says, we have a romance in the book of Acts. We have a book written strictly for entertainment because Acts 12 is very entertaining. But Witherington goes on, scholars have repeatedly asked what the point of this narrative is in Luke's narrative, since the story could have been left out without any harm to the overall flow of the account of early Christianity. Why is it here? Now, scholars can't just let that be a question, so they have to put a period at the end of the sentence. So here's some suggestions for this text, and I want you to think through it. Sylvia's read it, and as we work through it, I want you to ask yourself, what might be the intention here? So uh, here's some suggestions scholars have made as to the intention of Peter's prison break. One is, as I mentioned, Richard Purvo, strictly for entertainment. If you work through the book of Acts, it's pretty heavy, deep uh, material. Uh, a breath of fresh air is nice every once in a while in the midst of persecution, <laughs> famine, and trouble. And so some scholars say, this is just one of those moments along the way where Luke just needs to give you some lightheartedness <laughs> and to enjoy a little bit of the ride. Um, another suggestion is that this test, text exists to tell us that Jerusalem is no longer going to be the power base. If you're following through in the book of Acts, you know Jerusalem's the mother church. And... Uh, Global ministry, local and global ministry, has been uh, operating from the Mother Church of Jerusalem. And from this point on, we're going to see uh, the significance of missionary work in Jerusalem wane. So some scholars say, this is why we have this text to show us the center of attention is going to go from Jerusalem to Antioch, which is what you see in Acts chapter 13. Another possibility, scholars suggest, is that this text exists simply to tell us that Peter is no longer going to be the leader in the early church is going to be a fellow by the name of James, which is the half-brother of Jesus, not the James we just encountered in the first few verses of Acts chapter 12. Another suggestion is that the stage has now been cleared for Paul. Peter's off the scene. He's been the, what they call the VIP, the very important participant or the main character in Acts, and so now the stage is set for Paul because Peter's going to leave us, and now we can transition. Uh, Another possibility of this is that, and this is one that's very common today, Luke gives us some side notes along the way here in the text, and actually some translations put it in parentheses, where he's going to tell us that this is during the Passover. And then when you see the angel nudging Peter, actually 
forcefully uh, hitting him. And he says, get up quickly. That would remind you, if you were a Jew at least, or a Gentile who knew the Old Testament text, it would remind you of the Passover. And another one, a final one I'll give you today, is that Herodian persecution has continued. What Jesus experienced with Herodian persecution in the book of Luke is now continuing in the book of Acts. Those who follow Christ face Herodian persecution just as he did. So there are five or six suggestions as to the intention of the text. And I want you to see the beauty of this text, but also to be aware of the fact that there is just so much here. What we're going to do this morning uh, in a few minutes is we're going to um, work through this narrative, uh, what I call scene by scene. Some people call it acts by acts, uh, sort of picturing it as a stage, if you will, or a drama where you have uh, the backdrop and what is on the stage different through each scene. And I'm going to divide this narrative into four scenes. So, so you can follow along with me. We're going to have the first scene is uh, ch- chapter 12, 1 through 5. The next scene is 6 through 12. Scene number 3 is 13 through 19. And then, then the final scene will be scene number 4, 20 through 24. Uh, that's one way I can manage uh, presenting the text to you. And uh, as we work through each scene, I'm going to give you a little bit of historical background where it's appropriate to understand what's happening in the text. Uh, a little bit of detail on what's happening in the, in the Greek uh, so you can see some uh, added insight. And then after every scene, I want to ask you a few questions to think about how this should transform us. Okay, so let's begin. We'll start with scene <clears throat> number one. I'll read the first scene, and then we'll discuss, we'll discuss this. So Acts chapter 12, 1 through 5. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison... But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Okay, uh, let's begin first with some historical background. Who is Herod? Um, This is actually uh, Herod, what we would call Herod Agrippa. This isn't the Herod who sought to kill baby Jesus. This is actually the grandson of Herod the Great. Uh, His father was Aristobulus. Um, King Agrippa I is his name, but interestingly in this text, he's not called King Agrippa. He's called Herod. What's interesting is later on in the book of Acts, where we have his son, King Agrippa II, and it gets confusing, uh, Luke will actually call him Agrippa, but here he's going to simply call him Herod. So this is what have led scholars to the suggestion that you have this string of persecution, this Herodian dynasty, which is always dead set against Jesus and his followers. Uh, What's interesting about King Agrippa is that um, his grandfather, Herod the Great, owned a vast jurisdiction of land. He was a puppet king for Rome, Uh, Herod was, and so is uh, King Agrippa I. Um, He's ruling here in this scene from 41 to 44 AD, and he uh, had a little bit of political savviness to him. So he was educated in Rome itself, not here in Jerusalem. And while he was in Rome, he actually befriended would-be emperors. 
uh, made friends with them. Uh, two of those would be in order Caligula and Claudius, and they were to become Roman emperors. And by his friendships and rubbing shoulders with them, when he returned to Israel, uh, the first one, Caligula, the emperor, actually allowed him to be called the king of Israel. Now, king, he's a puppet king. He's not the emperor of Rome itself, but he is going to rule over the land that was formerly belonged to Philip and the Tetrarchies to the north of Israel. When Claudius comes along, the next emperor, he actually is going to allow him to continue to be the king, but then to give him all of the land, which includes to the south, Judea, and Samaria. So by the time we read about the, this situation in this text, Herod Agrippa, King Agrippa I, actually has approximately all of the land that his grandfather had uh, when he was ruling um, as Christ was coming on the scene. So he has vast jurisdiction, vast power, and he wields that power according to his whims. His responsibilities as a, as a king is to do two things Rome wants him to do, which is, of course, to administer justice and to collect taxes. Uh, but his other responsibility, which he takes upon himself, is to appease, to placate, and to curry favor with his citizens, the subjects of him, which is what King Agrippa certainly appears to be doing here, to curry favor with the Jews. So here we have this Herodian dynasty, a long line of antagonism to the Messiah and the followers of the Messiah, and Agrippa acts according to his whims as the governor. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, or the Passover, which is going to be referenced for us in verse 2, is, of course, the Passover, what we know about in the Old Testament, in Exodus 10 through 15, which is where God provided miraculous release for his people. And here again, God is acting in ways consistent with the Old Testament. He's going to provide release for his people. But in the midst of that, and you've heard how the story goes with what Sylvia read, look at verse 2. Um, Herod Agrippa proceeds to kill James, the brother of John. We've read about James in Luke's Gospel, in Luke chapter 5 and also Luke chapter 9 through 10, he was one of the early followers of Jesus who with reckless abandon left all that he had because of the supremacy of Christ. Uh, he was a sincere, uh, devout follower of Jesus and was committed to communicating the gospel deeply. And in this case, uh, he is killed. Another point of information to, to see is in verse 4. Uh, there are four squads of soldiers guarding him. Um, standard fare in the Greco-Roman world. This is how it would work. In the night, you have four watches of the night divided up into every three hours. So six to nine, nine to twelve, twelve to three, three to six. And Peter is assigned four squads of soldiers. The text is going to inform us later how this operated, which is two soldiers chained to him and then two outside the prison door. This is what we would consider maximum security. There's no getting out. Uh, not only is there no material way to get out, we believe this is within, in the Antonio Fortress, which is directly adjacent to the temple in the northwest uh, corner. But for the soldiers, there was motivation to never let anything happen because according to Roman custom, if you let a prisoner escape, you would face the same punishment that that prisoner was going to face. Uh, which explains uh, why Herod Agrippa does what he does uh, when the soldiers have no idea what happened to Peter. That tells us Peter was certain to die, and the soldiers have to face the same fate. It's a standard custom in the Greco-Roman world. So that's a little bit of the, uh, a bit of the background, but if you're looking at verse 5, uh, there's something else interesting, and I want to talk about this here. Uh, Luke uses the word earnest prayer, uh, which is the word ektenos in Greek, 
We've seen this word used before in prayer. We've seen it in Luke chapter 22, and we've seen it applied to Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane. What's interesting is, as you're working through Luke and Acts, you realize very quickly that for Luke, prayer is a major theme. The word of God advances through prayer. He links prayer and gospel progression significantly in Luke as he does it for Acts. You see this in Acts chapter 4, where the church is being persecuted. They pray, the Lord grants them boldness, and the word goes out. You see this in Acts 10, when Peter is praying. The Spirit speaks and says, go to Cornelius, this Gentile message goes out. You see this in Acts chapter 13, when they're in the midst of prayer, and the Spirit propels missions. The first missionary journey begins through the context of prayer. And so it's not a surprise that when you see this earnest prayer, your ears go up and you say, the Lord is going to do something because gospel proclamation and progression occurs through deep and earnest prayer. But you have to adjudicate all of the issues that are happening here in the text. And so one of the major themes that I think we want to catch first, so here's, here's some of the things I want us to wrestle with, is the fact that Uh, One believer experiences divine rescue, and one believer faces death. What does that tell us as the church? Can we manipulate God? Is he at our whims? Or is one of the first lessons that we learn here is that God works through prayer, but it's according to his sovereign pleasure. And the church always bows to the mystery and the providence of God in prayer. See, one of the reasons why scholars don't accept Amy Grant's presentation is you can easily see Peter singing angels watching over me, but it's hard to picture that for James, who experienced the sword. Um, So the church learns afresh daily to trust in the deep sovereignty of God, even as they lift their prayers to him. Uh, My question to you at the outset is, um, are you trusting deeply in the sovereignty of God? in the way that he answers prayer, but for his glory and for the progression of the gospel. The second thing that I think we need to take into account, though, is that the Lord does work in the midst of earnest prayer. Uh, As a matter of fact, even though our attention is riveted on the fact that Peter's in prison, uh, a certain death awaits him, The way verse 5 is set up is rather interesting. I just want to give you a little insight into how the Greek text actually works here. It starts in verse 5 with with the Greek, which is uh, two words, main un. And main un is a way of setting off something that's actually backgrounded to give you more anticipation to something that's even more important. So you have main un, so Peter was kept in prison, and then you have a day. And when you have the main un and then the day, the day tells you, this is really what I want you to catch. So let me uh, paraphrase what you would be seeing in verse 5, the way the Greek structure is laid, so you can see how this works. Something like this. So while it's the case that Peter's kept in prison, that's the main section, get this. Prayer, earnest prayers were being made to God for him. In other words, while we see the situation as desperate for Peter, the important thing to catch in verse 5 earnest prayers are happening. So I think we have to take a close look at the fact that one of the intentions of the text here is to teach us a lesson about prayer, trusting God's sovereignty and seeing that he does work 
in the face of very difficult circumstances. Maximum security, no escape. And this is where God delights to work, where only he can provide the rescue. We've seen this before in the book of Acts, if you're following the book of Acts before, that Luke has a fascination with divine rescue. Acts chapter 5, an angel delivers the early apostles in Jerusalem from the clutches of prison. You see this progress as the story progresses, even in Acts chapter 16, where Paul's in prison. And then you have in Acts chapter 27, a sea rescue as well. Uh, Luke is telling us that God works in divine ways beyond what we expected him to work. Uh, So my question is this morning, first, uh, do we trust in the sovereignty of God and his infinite wisdom? Do we trust that he desires the magnification of his son, that the gospel would progress? And are we in concert with that so we pray earnestly for this to take place? Or... Are we involved in a situation where we've given up? It's hopeless. So this becomes a powerful model for us and sets the stage for the other scenes, other scenes that follow. Okay, let's look at scene number two, Acts chapter six. Acts chapter twelve, six, excuse me, Acts chapter twelve, six through twelve. Now, this is where the story becomes very interesting. And if you are doing what they call narrative criticism in this text, which is where you look at it from a narrative perspective. A narratologist, someone who loves narratives, would say, this is really getting good. So when you have a story, you can present it from two different perspectives. You can present it from a remote perspective, which is where you're looking in the distance. The author is just giving you cursory statements about the way the narrative progresses. Or you can give it to you in an immediate, imminent perspective where you actually feel like you're involved in the story. You're walking through the details of the story. In the Greco-Roman world, they call this ekphrases, which is their way of saying when the story gets really good, the author's going to make you feel like you're watching the steps unfold before you. And that's exactly what we see here in Acts chapter 12, 6 through 12. So we have some fine detail on how the situation that Peter's involved with and how the divine rescue occurs. Let's read this now. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night. See, God's timing is in our timing. This is when he's going to work. Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, now in the Greek, the word is idou, I-D-O-U, which tells us Luke is saying, you better see this. (laughs) The main action in this scene is occurring right now. An angel of the Lord stood next to him. When all else was hopeless, the Lord intervenes. Stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him. Peter must be having a very sound sleep, saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. The angel said to him, dress yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He didn't know where he, what was being done by the angel was real. He thought he was seeing a vision. When he passed through the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street. Now, amazing detail. Immediately the angel left him. Finally, Peter <laughs> comes to himself. And he says, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people were expecting. One thing to notice here in the text, we have to ask ourselves this question is, who is providing the main action in the second scene? Who's doing the main action? Is it Peter? What, what is Peter doing 
throughout the second scene. Even though our attention is usually on Peter in this narrative, who is doing the action, the primary action? It would be the angel. Peter's doing what? He's following, he thinks he's in a train. This is how I picture it when I'm reading this story through. Um, Peter's kind of doing this. And just following as he goes along. Whereas um, if I was Peter, I would be like this. Um, he's not. He is strictly following uh, the messenger of God. And so I think um, our preoccupation here in this second scene has to be on the nature of God and his great power uh, in response to prayer. C.K. Barrett says this. I like this quote. He says, Everything turns upon God's gracious initiative, exercised through an angel. Peter is fast asleep. He contributes nothing more than sheer incomprehension and incredulity. Peter offers nothing to scene two. What we see in scene two is the great power of God. With an impossible circumstance, God works. And so I ask, do we believe that's the case, that God works in impossible situations? Do we need divine rescue in our lives, or can we do this ourselves? So the primary character in this narrative is not going to be Peter. I would encourage us to see it's not even going to be the church. It's going to be God himself acting for his glory and for the sake of his son that the message goes out. Very interesting. Next scene, 13 through 17. <clears throat> I forgot to mention, too, Uh, he's going to the house of Mary, the mother of John, in verse 12, whose other name was Mark. Many were gathered together and were praying. We know this because verse 5 has uh, told us this. In case you're wondering why in the world we have this individual named John, whose name is Mark, given to us, this is Luke's typical way of doing things. He'll present a character, he'll drop the name, and you say, why? And don't worry, because he'll pick it back up again. (laughs) So in Acts chapter 13, you're going to see John Mark, and it's going to become a rather heated issue in the early church at the start of the second missionary journey. But that doesn't concern us here this morning. Uh, So the divine rescue has been accomplished to the point where he is at the door of those in the church who have been praying for him. So let's look at 13 through 17 now. This is scene number three. When he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. We, would believe, we believe this would have been a, a servant girl or a slave in a fairly well-to-do household in the early church. So giving up your possessions and getting rid of all of them didn't appear to be the case here for, for Mary or for many in the early church. But they had an open-hand policy. Um, recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she didn't open the gate. Now this is where the humor era begins. She doesn't open the gate, but she runs in and reports that Peter was standing at the gate. What's very interesting about this, um, in, in most languages, when you're telling a story, you can identify what is one of the main ideas in the narrative by seeing where the quotations are. So in your translation, you can see there are places where there's quotations and places where there's not quotations. The non-quotations, which is what we would call indirect speech, is when you simply know what the character said, but you don't see it falling from their lips. Direct speech is where it actually falls from the character's mouth. And if you're giving a narrative and you want everyone to hear what they're saying, you're going to give them a direct speech quotation. 
In indirect speech, your attention isn't primarily on. You could call it this way. In a direct speech, you foreground what's being said. In an indirect speech, you background what's being said. So what you're looking at here in the text is that what's being backgrounded is the voice of the voice of Rhoda. But what's being foregrounded is the church. <laughs> and this is very interesting because we know the church has been earnestly praying. But this tells us something about the nature of their prayers. And so what are they saying in response? They say to her, direct speech, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, again, direct speech, it's his angel. <laughs> now, there appears to have been a later Jewish belief uh, that angels would reflect those who had departed. Uh, you see uh, this concept possibly in Luke, Luke 24, where Jesus is walking with the two on the road to Emmaus. You see this in an other Jewish text called Tobias. To be honest, we're not quite sure what they were believing in this situation, but they certainly didn't believe he was being rescued. But Peter continues knocking. And when they had opened, they saw him and are amazed. But motioning to them with his hands to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now, this is where it becomes rather interesting is when we ask ourselves, what's going on with this scene? We know, we know the church is praying earnestly. So why does Luke tell us the church's response? Would you call this imperfect prayer? Would you call this um, not expectant prayer? Would you call this weak prayer? Uh, we don't want to fault the church too hard. So I think what we want to do in sensitivity is say, at the very least, what we see here is something that's reflected in Ephesians 3.20 which tells us uh, God is able to do immeasurably beyond all that we can ask or imagine. And so we see that even in the midst of earnest prayer, uh, our prayers are imperfect, and sometimes we don't expect God to act in ways that uh, surpass what we could have imagined. Uh, is that the case for you? When you pray, do you think there's a one-on-one -one correspondence or God always does a little less? Or do you have an expectancy that God is doing immeasurably beyond for his glory, for the goodness of his name? Have you seen that in your life through the prayers you've offered to God? That for the sake of the magnification of his son, he is working in ways we couldn't have seen. I actually was speaking to a friend just two days ago um, who, who's actually preaching this Sunday, and uh, we were talking about one of his non-believing friends, and he said, this guy's rough. This guy is very rough. I said, have you been praying for him? He's like, yeah, but not really that much. <laughs> so guess where his non-believing friend's going to be this Sunday? In church. He's like, I never would have imagined him. And not only is he in church, he's actually standing next to the pastor as they present some concepts as the, the pastor is going to ask him some questions about his journey. Uh, I'm convicted of this in my own life. Because I am involved in some situations that look like a mission impossible as well. Um, my prayers are weak. Uh, do, they, do I expect God to work for the glory of his name even beyond all that I ask or imagine? And do I trust his sovereignty to work according to his great will? Uh, this is very encouraging for us as the church to continue to pray for the progression of the gospel that God would be magnified and that he is pleased 
to answer the prayer of his saints and then goes beyond. Does that encourage you? This encourages me significantly. So we're learning something very powerful about the nature of prayer. Imperfect, yes. Weak, yes. And God responds in a resounding yes uh, to Jesus so that he is magnified. The final scene is interesting. We start with Herod and we're going to end with Herod. We start with an antagonist and we're going to end here with Herod. Uh, when the day came, there's no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And uh, he had Herod searched for him and didn't find him. He examined the sentries in order they, they'd be put to death. Uh, we've already mentioned why he would do that. Then he went down to Judea to Caesarea and spent some time there. Judea, even though that's where Jerusalem would be, was not the administrative seat of Israel. It would be in Caesarea, where Roman emperors would visit and where Agrippa would be ruling. So he doesn't get his way with Peter. He is not able to frustrate the progression of the gospel. But we learn something about the nature of antagonists to the gospel with what occurs next. Uh, Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to to him with one accord. These are free-ruling cities to the north who really depended upon Herod. Uh, And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. The people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately, the angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. What does this tell you about God's desire for the glory of his name? He doesn't take it lightly when people try to glory snatch. Uh, what's interesting is, in Acts chapter 3 and 4, you have a situation where there's a, a, a miracle And the crowds look at Peter as if he is some divine figure who's just healed somebody. And he has a chance to snatch the glory from God. And he says, why are you looking at me? This was done through God's anointed servant, Jesus. Uh, We see an interesting thing, though, a theme which is very tragic. For those who oppose the gospel, they face tragic ends. And this occurs for Herod. Uh, A gruesome end, and actually... Uh, Josephus, who is not a Christian, who is a first century historian, wrote in his Antiquity of the Jews this very story. He has a few details, but it is very much in concert with what Luke tells us about the nature of his death. And Josephus says this is exactly why he died. Uh, Vainglorious. And so someone who tried to squelch the gospel faces tragic ends. And what happens with the gospel in verse 24? God's desires are for the magnification of his son, and it's only going to increase and to multiply, praise his name. So very interesting narrative. With four scenes, many details, and a lesson on prayer, and the sovereignty and great power of God. So I want to close with asking you a question. Uh, what difficult situation are you involved with today? What individual do you have in your mind that you should be in prayer for? What persecuted Christians are there in the world that you're praying for that desire to progress the gospel and to spread it? Is there a situation in which you say, God, you can't work to magnify your son here? This narrative challenges us to come to God in earnest prayer, believing he delights in the glory of his name, and he will work above and beyond all that we ask or imagine. Are we involved in that today? I would encourage you to pray for those unbelieving friends that you have. Who are they? 
I can name five or ten. Am I praying? God works in our, through our prayers. Who are your friends that you've given, hope of, given up hope on? Nope, it hasn't happened yet. Well, in this narrative, God works at the 11th hour. Is there a situation where you say the church today cannot continually advance anymore because of this religion, because of this persecution? What is God doing? Are we praying for those who are in prison for the sake of the gospel? Are we praying for boldness for ourselves to spread the message of his name? And so I invite you, dear church, to join with me in earnest prayer that God's name would continue to be glorified and then watch as history unfolds and the glory of Christ is spread abroad and continues to do so. Let's close in prayer. Gracious Father, thank you for your word. We delight in the fact that you desire for your name to be glorified and your son to be seen as supreme. And you are working daily to this end. Forgive us for not working to this end through our prayers, our weak and imperfect and unbelieving prayers. We ask you by the power of your spirit to empower us, to inflame us with passion for those who don't know you, that you would raise up laborers to go forth into your fields, that you would equip us with boldness to spread the message of Christ, that those who are saints who are persecuted around the world are emboldened to speak for you. And as we offer these for our unbelieving friends' prayers, we thank you that you are working above and beyond all that we ask or imagine. Thank you for this narrative. And we are weak, and we can't do this apart from your resources. So we ask your spirit to continually energize us to desire that your name be spread. Thank you for hearing us, Father. We delight to see the ways that you are working today for your glory. In your beloved's name, Jesus, we ask this. Amen.